Hello and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that gives you the pieces of Swedish history to put together your very own historical flatpack piece of furniture. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. Today we're taking a break from our usual chronological journey through Swedish history for another special episode. Uh, in the regular podcast, we've now been talking about Sweden during the 13th century. So it's a massive jump forward in time today to talk about something that happened exactly 35 years ago this spring. Yes, it's another 20th century thing that we're talking about. And we did feel like it's time for another one of our special episodes. We've done two of these so far. Um, one about the Swedish practice of issuing civilian dog tags and one about urban bomb shelters. Like before, we're doing this episode because we've come across something interesting and slightly unusual, something off the beaten track of history, so to say. And it was actually a, a listener who got in contact with us on social media to suggest this episode once we were posting about something that happened 35 years ago this spring. And uh, that's exactly what we've done. So a few months ago, the world marked the 35th anniversary of the Chernobyl disaster. And in the run-up to this anniversary, there was lots of discussion in Sweden about the role that Sweden played uh, in the aftermath of the disaster. And that's what got us a bit interested and got our listener on social media interested in too. So we thought we would expand the just one tweet or one Facebook post that we uh, published into a whole episode. But before we delve into those intense days in April of 1986, let's do our Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, a phrase that definitely wasn't applicable to Chernobyl either. Um, dance por rosa. So in English, that would be a dance upon roses. As you might be able to guess, because roses are nice and dancing is usually something that's nice too, dance por rosa means that something is easy. It's going well. It's all coming up Millhouse, to quote The Simpsons, for uh, those of our listeners who are familiar with his favorite saying yeah or it's a piece of cake it's probably the easiest english translation if yeah. you don't watch the simpsons <laughs> so you could say that if you're doing something at work this project is going really well like a dance on roses and dance por also so this phrase is also often used in the negative we say that something is not a dance on roses Det är ingen dans på rosor, meaning the opposite, that something like a project or a task you're doing is not easy, but instead hard and difficult and it's not going well. And a time and a place where things definitely weren't going well was at nuclear reactor number four in what was then the Soviet nuclear power plant of Chernobyl on the 26th of April 1986, 35 years and a few months ago. Now, we should be clear, there are more and different ways to learn about what actually happened during the Chernobyl disaster itself than to listen to us, because what we want to focus on is the role that Sweden played in the immediate aftermath. Exactly. There has been so much written and broadcasted about Chernobyl. I'm sure that in whichever language you prefer to access material in, there will be lots to read or watch or listen to if you want to learn more about Chernobyl itself. Uh, we've actually recently watched the TV series that's simply called Chernobyl, for example, which is a dramatization, but based on uh, actual event. 
That being said, we thought we'd just give you a brief summary of what happened to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because even though this happened relatively recently, we weren't all around then. Chris and I weren't around, for example. And some people might be less familiar with the disaster than others. Absolutely. So, as we said, it's April 1986, uh, very much at the height of the Cold War, and the world was incredibly divided in slightly different ways than it is divided today. It's sometimes difficult to imagine, even though it's not a long time ago in the grand scheme of history, especially when we look back to uh, Eric Segersel and people <laughs> like that, it's much closer to today. But uh, it's, it's hard for some of us born in sort of the modern day, if you can call it that, which you probably can't, um, how little the East and the West in Europe and in uh, the Northern Hemisphere knew about each other. It was incredibly difficult for the West, if we're going to use that horrible broad term, uh, to know about what was going on in the USSR and all around what is now modern day Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, for example. Exactly. And that isolation and lack of knowledge will play a huge part in what will happen later on. But yes, like Chris said, it's April 1986 and we're at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant just outside the town of Pripyat in what was then the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. So a part of the USSR, a part of the Soviet Union. Chernobyl was one of 12 nuclear power plants active in the USSR at the time, and they planned to build more. Chernobyl had four reactors, with the first going online in 1977, and in general was heralded as a success at the time. It had been built in record-breaking time, and Reactor 4, along with the others, had run without disruptions after Reactor 4 had been put online in 1983, so it's three years old at this point. Now, if you want to learn more about how nuclear reactors work, uh, this isn't necessarily the <laughs> podcast to listen to. Also, and I are very much history podcasts, not physics podcasters. So maybe we should just keep things incredibly simple and say that nuclear power plants make electricity by harnessing power by the process of fission, cutting atomic nuclei in half, and this releases huge amounts of energy. Yeah, let's keep it at that before we say something wrong. I've been trying to wrap my head around how it actually works and bring back what I learned in physics in school. And it's all, to me, quite confusing. We could have gotten Chris's dad on the podcast, though, because he literally worked as a nuclear engineer on the Royal Navy's nuclear submarines. But like we said, this is more about what happened in Sweden. Chris's dad, Neil, did help us a lot fact-checking the script so that we weren't completely off the mark with uh, what was happening. So thank you very much, Neil. What now happens at the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl will go down in history as the worst nuclear disaster the world has ever seen. It's a Friday night, the 25th of April, Eventually, it'll be in the early hours of Saturday the 26th when the accident happens, but it starts on the Friday night. So what it starts with is that reactor number four is due to be taken out of action for yearly maintenance, but at the same time, they're going to do an experiment on the reactor that aims to look at how they can improve the input of emergency power to the reactor's cooling system in case there's a lack of normal cooling power. 
To do this, they need to turn the power down to quite low levels to run the test before turning it off completely. It's the steps taken to conduct this experiment that will go horribly wrong. Uh, we're now going to summarize this in very much an idiot's guide to Chernobyl and uh, deliberately leaving out a few complicated concepts. So please no hate mail from nuclear physicists. We are skipping over very technical but important details, but they're just too complicated to attempt to explain. Otherwise, it, we'll be talking about this for an hour. So, it's 11 o'clock when the control room gives the workers at Chernobyl the all-clear to start lowering the power and eventually go ahead with the experiment. Now, there are two simple things that happen inside a nuclear reactor when it's running. The reactivity, which creates the power, and the electricity output either goes up or down. When the reactions increase... That generates more steam, which turns the turbines and generates more electricity. Uh, there are different techniques in different reactors to help control the levels of reaction. Among other techniques and design methods, the reactor at Chernobyl uses control rods to increase or decrease the reaction in the plant. And these are used to maintain balance and keep the power stable. These are made out of boron that they can either insert or take out of the core. If all the rods are in, there's less reaction. And if they're taken out, then that results in higher reactions and more energy produced for power. When this energy is produced, it creates a lot of heat. And so for the whole system and the whole reactor to not overheat, it's cooled down by water. Now, the plan was to slowly decrease the power to 25% to be able to conduct this experiment. But instead, a series of mistakes means they turn it down to just 1%, and they need to increase it to reach 25% and start the experiment. To increase the power, the control rods are taken out a bit, but for a number of reasons, nothing happens right away. So the control rods are taken out even more. As the power increases a bit, they reach an acceptable level for the test, so they start the experiment. But because the control rods have been taken out too far, the power just continues to increase. In order to be able to complete the experiment, several safety features have been turned off and safety procedures have been breached. So when the build-up of energy suddenly increases, in fact the increase happens in the space of something like 35 seconds, the cooling system is unable to cope with the sudden increase in heat and starts to malfunction. The workers press the emergency stop button to lower all the control rods as quickly as possible into the reactor and slow the reaction, but by now it's far too late. The control rods are fully inserted, and because of the design of this specific reactor, which uh, we won't explain here, the power is actually increased in the first few seconds of this emergency shutdown procedure. In fact, it jumps massively. So this means that the reactor is running at 100 times above maximum safe levels. And at 24 minutes past midnight, the spiral of dangerous events climaxes. The superheated steam builds up and the reactor can't contain this and explodes. It isn't a nuclear explosion, but lots of radioactive material is thrown into the sky. In fact, the actual mechanics of the explosion, they're still debated today. 
uh, we'll link to a great video that we've watched on the disaster from a person with an actual physics degree, as opposed to me and Chris. Yeah, it's a good video, and I'll definitely watch it if you're interested in how the reactor actually works. Um, and there are a few people who think there might have actually been a very small nuclear explosion as well, as it's all part of the one big bang, but whether it was technically a nuclear explosion or not, this is the sort of details that people are debating, not really how much destruction was caused, but almost how it happened. One thing we should say is that people do not have to start worrying about nuclear power where they live now. The Chernobyl reactor and many like it in the Soviet Union were built cheaply and with very different safety standards to almost everywhere else in the world, including modern-day Russia. The setup and safety standards were and are massively higher in the UK, the US and Sweden, for example. So don't worry too much about this happening near you. Uh, when I was speaking to my dad about it, he was massively surprised at some of the very bad safety procedures that were in the Chernobyl reactor that didn't even happen when he was uh, looking at nuclear reactors in the UK 10 years before the Chernobyl accident. That's not to say that nuclear power is completely safe. Obviously, accidents have happened before Chernobyl and after Chernobyl. And it's uh, up to each and every one of us to form uh, our own opinions on this particular method of uh, energy source. But back to Chernobyl, there's lots of accounts out there of what happened in more detail and what the immediate reaction to the disaster was. But what's important to understand for now is that the news that this has happened does not get out. That's because it's 1986. <laughs> There's no smartphones, no social media, no podcasts. It's not captured by a passerby on their phone and then put on Twitter the next minute for the whole world to see. And it's not just 1986. It's 1986 in the Soviet Union, which had a culture of keeping things quiet and a practice of keeping people not only out of the loop, but not informed at all when it came to local officials and agencies and leaders about many things that happened and especially things that went wrong. There was a practice of keeping information close to the chest in many ways. Yeah, so whilst the effects of the explosion is obviously clear to the people in the immediate area, I mean, stuff is literally on fire, you can't keep that secret, and local authorities are made aware, and eventually the Soviet authorities are informed and begin to act nationally, this does not reach the rest of the world. It's almost mind-boggling to imagine for us today, because... Like Chris said, we live in a time where so much is filmed and spread via social media and I can sit in my kitchen in Sweden and see everything from protests in Myanmar or a train crash in Japan essentially live on my phone. 35 years ago, the world's worst nuclear disaster happened and the world did not know about it not just didn't know about it right away, but did not know about it for nearly two days. So we just have to try and understand what the landscape of spreading information was like in the mid-80s. And this is where Sweden comes into the story. Yes, we're leaving the USSR for now and moving all the way up to Sweden, namely to the Forsmark 
nuclear power plant on the Swedish east coast, about 140 kilometers north of Stockholm, which is just under 100 miles. It's now Monday morning, 28th of April 1986. No one in Sweden, or indeed anyone outside the USSR, knows what's happened at Chernobyl. It's two days after the reactor exploded. Instead, in Sweden, the biggest news is that the Swedish ice hockey team is through in the World Cup after victory against Canada over the weekend. I mean, of course that's the biggest news. The moon could be falling down and the headline in the Swedish newspapers would still be about ice hockey. They have to understand that ice hockey trumps everything. Yeah, exactly. Probably thinking about the ice hockey result on his way to work, a completely unsuspecting worker arrives at the Forsmark plant to start his shift around 8am. Yeah, he probably is thinking about the ice hockey rather than work. Yeah, let's imagine he did. Yeah, and he has a somewhat unusual morning routine in that he likes to brush his teeth and do all his sort of like preparation, personal grooming at work. So he comes in from the outside straight into the changing room and gets ready to go into the actual plant and to his office. Now, to get into the actual working part of the plant, he has to go through a safety check where there's a measuring device to check for radioactive particles on people. This checkpoint is actually meant to check people going out from the plant to make sure that they don't take radioactive particles with them out to the world, so to say. But... It happens to work the other way around as well, checking people from the outside coming in, even though that's not the main purpose of the machine. And that fact, the fact that it does that, like a side effect, will change history on this particular Monday morning. Because as this worker goes through the checkpoint, an alarm goes off, and that's telling everybody that he has radioactive particles on his shoes. And this should be impossible because he's not been to work yet. It's Monday morning and he's been at home all weekend. He's not been out anywhere with these shoes to where there should be radioactivity. So, as I think almost anybody would, he thinks there's something wrong with the machine. And so instead goes to go through another entrance where there's another version of the same machine. And instead of just letting him go through because there was something wrong with the first machine, the second machine also sets off an even bigger alarm because it finds even more radioactive particles on him than the first. Now, once might be a hiccup with the machine, but twice, that means that something's wrong. And the big alarm is sounded at Forsmark. Radiation technicians are called out with their own measurement devices and they confirm that there is radioactivity on this man's shoes. And they also trace the man's footsteps and find radioactivity in the grass outside. This event, the one man's shoes and a measurement device that happens to also function in reverse, is the first step to the rest of the world finding out about the Chernobyl disaster. The radioactivity that's found on this man is from Chernobyl, and it's the first sign of the disaster to anyone outside the USSR. Now, just because they've discovered this at the Forsmark nuclear power plant, that doesn't mean, oh, yes, of course, <laughs> that's, that means somewhere in the USSR something has happened. That's not what they're thinking at all. On the contrary, no one can imagine that this is what's happened. 
For 40 years, since nuclear power plants were introduced in Sweden, all that anybody's ever prepared for is an accident happening at one of the Swedish plants. And so that's what they assume this is too. Within 30 minutes of this man going through that machine that detects radioactivity, uh, the Forsmark plant and all nuclear power across Sweden has gone into high alert and the action plan for a radioactive leak in Sweden is put into place by the authorities. The Forsmark nuclear power plant is shut down and evacuated. The plant's crisis management team starts to work because they're thinking... Something's wrong here, and we don't know what it is. But the more they work and the more they follow all their procedures that they have in place in case of a radioactive leak, the less they understand. What they're seeing doesn't fit into any scenario, because what they're seeing is radioactivity present outside the plant, but nothing inside the now shut down nuclear power plant. So where is the radioactivity coming from? Yes, and in the meantime, the government is naturally alerted, but the then Minister of Energy, Birgitta Dahl, immediately, naturally, <laughs> cancels all her plans to take responsibility nationally for the action plan in case of a nuclear disaster. By lunchtime, the news has reached Swedish radio and TV, who were saying that a radioactive leak has occurred at the Forsmark nuclear power plant, simply because that's what everyone thinks has happened, even though the people working there still can't make any sense of it. And understandably, there's a bit of panic among the general Swedish population. This Minister Dahl has since said in an interview afterwards that in that first instance she saw it as one of her primary responsibilities to be the government's face for the public and to work to minimise the panic amongst the people. She also said that she saw right away the need for international cooperation, regardless of the details of what happened, and got in touch with both other ministers and international officials. The International Atomic Agency, the IAEA, was headed by a Swede at the time, Hans Blix, which uh, anybody who's seen Team America will remember his <laughs> name. Oh, Hans Blix. <laughs> Hans Blix came to uh, play an important role in the run-up to the Iraq War in 2003, so might come back to his name again. Definitely. And so maybe the fact there was another Swede in charge of the IAEA uh, was a bit helpful, but uh, yeah. Uh, after a few hours, the people working at the Forsmark plant, they begin to think, well, what if it's not coming from us? They do an isotope analysis and determine that this is not a nuclear bomb that's gone off anywhere. A possibility that might sound completely bonkers to us, but wasn't as unrealistic in 1986. Uh, because again, remember very little crossed that east-west divide. So there could have been a bomb exploding somewhere and Sweden wouldn't know about it. Or perhaps it was a Soviet test of a bomb. And that's the reason why radioactive particles have travelled in the air for hundreds of miles. But the analysis determined that no, it's not a bomb. So they begin to analyze if it could be an explosion from a nuclear power plant somewhere else that they don't know about. And with the help of meteorologists, they calculate the prevailing wind directions from that morning and the weekend that's just passed. 
they also look at where in Sweden the radioactivity is predominantly detected, and they determine that it's mainly in the areas of the northeast and central north where it's also rained over the weekend. All these things taken into account, they calculate that what might be behind that morning's strange event is an explosion at a civilian nuclear power plant in the area around Kiev. Aha. Aha. They inform Minister Dahl and the Swedish Foreign Office about their suspicions. And at 4.30 in the afternoon of this 28th of April, Monday, the Swedish embassy in Moscow sends a polite question to their USSR colleagues, asking if something might have possibly maybe happened in the area around Kiev over the weekend. And just a few hours later, probably after a bit of panicking, their USSR colleagues go public and said there's been an explosion in one of the reactors at Chernobyl. You can sort of see a chain of events here that fateful Monday. A pair of shoes, an alarm, an investigation, a question, and finally, an announcement. As we said, we watched the TV series Chernobyl a few months ago, and I thought it was funny when one of the two main characters, this... uh, There's the scientist and the government official. They're at Chernobyl and the government official, he says something along the lines of, we have to say something now. The Swedes know what's happened. And that's when they're forced to go public. Uh, I thought that that was funny because the Russian government official is played by Stellan Skarsgård, who is Swedish. Excellent uh, coincidence. But because of this announcement by the Soviet Union, the Swedish authorities and the news outlets correct themselves, and by the time the country sits down to watch the evening news and more analysis of the ice hockey, they know that there is increased radioactivity in Scandinavia, but it's not because of a local disaster, but rather one at a power plant in Ukraine. But that doesn't mean that it's all fine and dandy for Sweden. Uh, In fact, in some ways, it's the opposite. Uh, The people in charge here knew how to handle a limited outbreak in Sweden, but they had no idea how to handle a large-scale outbreak in a foreign country where they had no influence. Sweden was one of the countries most affected by the consequences of radioactive downfall outside of the USSR itself. The fact that it had rained in many parts of Sweden over that weekend when the disaster happened was a further unfortunate factor in the spread of nuclear fallout. In fact, mushrooms, berries, fish and meat from wild game became inedible due to radioactive contamination. Uh, The most affected areas in Sweden were the counties of Västerbotten, Västernorland and parts of Jämtland, Gävleboy and Uppland. So that's essentially, if you look at a map, that's the coast north of Stockholm and inland in a sort of horseshoe shape across the central north. Uh, In these areas, you can still, today, 35 years later, detect increased levels of radioactivity in wild boars, for example, uh, according to a recent study from the Swedish Radiation Safety Authority. Reindeer herding, which is still an essential part of life for the indigenous Sami community, was particularly affected by Chernobyl. 
Many of the most affected areas are home to reindeer herding families, and reindeer's favourite food is moss, which was particularly susceptible to being contaminated, which in turn, of course, means that reindeer meat itself became contaminated. Selling reindeer meat for food consumption is a vital part of the income for many Sami families, so when that became impossible due to the levels of radiation in the meat, that was a huge financial blow to many people and their families. And that's adding to the emotional blow of having to slaughter your animals and see everything go to waste. Apart from the impact it had on flora and fauna, and by extension the impact on industries and communities, There's been a long debate in Sweden about whether or not the radioactive fallout caused by Chernobyl has led to more cancer cases in Sweden. I've read several studies when researching for this episode, and on balance, they all more or less conclude that it falls within the margin of error, meaning that they can't really tell. Like I said, there was a study published just earlier this year by the Swedish Radiation Safety Authority about the effects we can still see here. Whilst the study says that there are no direct risk today, analysis on forest and fell areas in particular still show increased levels of especially cesium-137 in those most affected areas in the east and northeast. Obviously, the USSR, or what is today Ukraine, Belarus, and parts of Russia, were by far the worst affected areas of the Chernobyl disaster, and many areas and many people still suffer very devastating consequences of the disaster. As what I think a lot of people know, people can't live in the area around Chernobyl still, and probably won't be able to in hundreds and hundreds of years. But with that being said, it's still interesting to see how even somewhere as far away as Sweden was affected and is continued to be affected today. Also, we should be clear because talking about Chernobyl sometimes raises issues that tear up old wounds and the sense of blaming one party. Nuclear disasters were and still are by no means something that only happened in what was known as the East during the Cold War. In 1979, there was a devastating accident at a power plant in Harrisburg in Pennsylvania, for example, and there's been uh, problems in Japan as well, and so uh, things can happen. It's not just the Soviets who mess something up. No, definitely not. Sweden's relationship to nuclear power is definitely something we will cover when we get to the second part of the 20th century in our regular episode, because it's always been a hot political issue here. Uh, We actually had a referendum about whether we should have nuclear power or not. Was there any political fallout from the referendum? There was a lot of political fallout from that referendum. But for now, let's wrap up what happened in late April 1986. So yes, the Swedes involved in what happened then and tracing it to the USSR have said afterwards that they believe it might have helped in making the USSR a little bit more open about the event and accepting of outside help. But who knows, we're all not exactly objective when judging our own impact in hindsight. Definitely, and Birgitta Dahl, who was energy minister at the time, has even said later in interviews that when the Swedish embassy sent that question on the Monday, officials in Moscow didn't know about Chernobyl, even though it had happened about 48 hours earlier. That's how strong the culture of secrecy in the USSR was. 
Again, whether that was really the case, we don't know, but could have been to some extent. Either way, it could be argued that by the time Sweden blew the whistle, so to say, it was too little too late anyway, since the explosion had happened just after midnight two days earlier. Yes, and whilst um, a random official at the Russian Foreign Office in Moscow might not know about it, that didn't mean the Russians were just letting it burn. They were actually trying to stop the problem. In many ways, it's an unfortunate coincidence, uh, in a story full of unfortunate coincidences, that the accident happened on a Saturday morning. Had it happened on a weekday, it might have been detected sooner. But now, because there was less activity at the Forsmark plant over the weekend with less people coming in, it wasn't until the Monday morning that a man in his shoes set off an alarm that would echo across the world. And with that almost poetic ending, <laughs> I think it's time for us to say goodbye and thank you for listening to this special episode of A Flat Pack History of Sweden. We hope you've enjoyed it and we'll be back again with our ordinary episodes next time. Thank you for our listener for suggesting this lovely episode. Yeah, and please feel free to uh, to do so more if uh, there is a topic that you think we should cover as a special episode or focus on in our regular chronology. Yeah, I think special episodes should be kept to the 20th century so we don't start going backwards in time or covering things that we'll cover very soon in the regular episodes. True, but in general suggestions are always welcome we can't promise that we act on them immediately and just get in touch in general you'll find us on twitter and facebook and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on that is always very appreciated but until next time it's hey Dale from us bye bye